Well, 2020 has certainly been erratic. From lockdowns to loss of socializing and enjoyment of a lot of the blessings of life. Some of us, the loss of jobs. And uh, even recently, the loss, potential loss of a loved one's life and then even losing a loved one's life. I'm sure we can all acknowledge that 2020 has been erratic. And as I reflect on this as a pastor of the church, I'm incredibly grateful for the stability and predictability of what has gone on here at First Baptist Church through the ministry and in the ministry of the Word of God and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In my mind, what has been the steady heartbeat of First Baptist Church in 2020 and in the other years that I've been here, and I assume the, the years that Pastor Rick was here before me, what has been the steady heartbeat of First Baptist Church is the ministry of the Word. That's pretty incredible if you think about how erratic 2020 has been, but then you think about what the heartbeat of First Baptist Church has been. In the first five months of the lockdown from March to August, though unfortunately we did not gather as a church the elders still wanted to be about teaching the very Word of God and to have the congregation be hearing the Word of God, even though we're not gathered, we're listening to it online. But yet that was the steady heartbeat of the ministry there. We wanted all of our hearts to be beating according to the Word of God week after week after week, despite all of the erratic weeks and all the occurrences of 2020. And then in the second five months, from August all the way until right now, by God's grace, we've actually been gathering, praise the Lord, as a church to give God all the glory, to gather together as His people to worship Him, especially through the teaching and hearing of the Word of God, through baptism, which we have had, and then also in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. That, friends, is a win. You guys realize that? That is a, an absolute win. Not just because we got to keep our Sunday routine, for the last five months at least, as we gather together every Sunday, but because of what we do in the routine, which is feed on Christ through the Word of God. I think, guys, as we look back at 2020, we should see evidence of God's grace as we have sought to worship Him and be faithful witnesses with the gospel that He has saved us with. And insofar as we are faithful, insofar as you are faithful, we walk in the footsteps of other Christians who have, in fact, gone before as all of Christ's people, as the entire church throughout time and space has received the mission to witness to Christ in the preaching of the gospel. In our passage this morning, we are reminded of the, of the importance of the church's mission, which is to preach the gospel even in spite of erratic circumstances, even more specifically as we think about Acts chapter 5, people's refusal to believe. That was what was erratic for them. But yet they are faithful. Here's the main point today. We see, or the main idea, we see God's persistence in spite of the people's refusal. God's persistence in spite of the per people's refusal. I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We are in verses 12 to 32, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 32. And, uh, you know, there's so much good stuff in here, but we're going to have to go at a, at a relatively high level, not quite dive into every detail, but kind of 
draw out the main points, and Lord willing, the main point of the passage will be the main point of the sermon here. As is obvious, we continue walking through the book of Acts, which is about the risen Christ working through his apostles to build his church according to the Holy Spirit, all through the power of the gospel. Thus far, we've seen that God is pouring out his blessings upon the early church, and many people, we're talking thousands of people, have come to believe on Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They're saved. But though there is thanksgiving and praise for God's work and salvation, there is also animosity. In our section, which really wraps up all the way back to chapter 3, so we got 3, 4, and 5 here, our section really wraps up what began in chapter 3. We see the leaders of over Israel are certainly not happy with everything that's going on in the name of Jesus. Point number one, we see animosity from the authorities. Animosity from the authorities. We see this there in verse 17. We're going to go back to verse 12. But look there at verse 17. The authorities, right, they rise up. They take action. Ironically, not to receive the disciples, not to receive the followers of Jesus, the Messiah, or to thank them or to join them, but instead to arrest them. After all, they are Jesus' disciples. You look there at 17 and 18. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, these teachers of the law, and filled with jealousy, what do they go on to do? Verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. And we know the reason. You look back at 12, you look at 12 to 16, just go ahead and skim there, right? They are filled with jealousy because of the church's success the early disciples' success by the grace and power of God. God is doing what he promised to do, build his people through signs and wonders, miracles, and then which pointed people to the preached word that held out the gospel of Jesus Christ. 12 to 16, we see that God's grace was upon them. God was working through miracles, through the disciples, which is exactly what he promised there in chapter 2. The disciples were so known to be miracle workers at this time that people in Jerusalem and in the surrounding towns they want to get as close to Peter as they can, right? That might be sort of a, a description of what, or an unpacking of what's described there as, so that their shadow would fall upon them. They seem to just simply, I think, just want to get close to them. They want to be near these miracle workers. And it says there that many people were healed. And then it also says that the apostles grow in favor with all of the people. That There's a, just a general respect given to them. A proper respect for those who were not serious about Jesus. Those who did not believe, they dared not join them, it says there. But we know those who did believe, those who were serious. It says there, multitudes, both men and women, were added to their number, all by God's grace. You see this great success come upon the apostles. But also, we know that it is to the authorities' irritation and anger. So what do they do? They rise up descend on them and throw them in the public jail in effort to stop all this noise about this Jesus Christ. And what's so interesting there, as one commentator noted, right, they're throwing them into the public jail, probably very publicly so everybody would see. I mean, they're preaching right there in the temple. They're healing people in the temple. They rise up and they throw them in the public jail so everybody can see. But what happens there in the darkness when no one can see? In the cover of darkness, while the high priests and the other leaders are all sleeping, waiting to interrogate them tomorrow, what happens? God moves to free the apostles. There in verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. This was the first, this is the first of three supernatural prison breaks, all by God, recorded here in the book of Acts, where the apostles are jailed and then they're freed, but in order to do what? Right, if you were jailed for the gospel, 
and then God frees you. It's not so that you can return to your, your creaturely comforts. What do they do? Verse 20, it's for the purpose that they would preach the gospel. It says there in verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, this resurrection life, this life in Christ, this life of eternal life that was won for them in Jesus Christ and for anybody who repents of their sins and believe. That's what they want to preach. He frees them from the prison and says, go back to where you got arrested and continue preaching the gospel. In the morning, they actually return to the temple to preach Jesus. Just imagine being an Israelite. For those with eyes to see and ears to hear, it would have been so amazing to hear about this Jesus in the very temple of God, where you go to dwell with God. And here they're preaching Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the temple. In Christ we see the God-man. In Christ we meet God. God the Son, His eternal Son, come to save us from our sins. He has drawn near to man. He's the fulfillment of all the sacrifices that were made year after year after year. He is, in fact, the great high priest who intercedes for his people. In him, the old covenant of Moses has passed, and then in him, in his blood, the new covenant has been ratified through his sacrifice, and in him there is salvation. It's ironic, then, that the very leaders of Israel, the teachers of the law, who were to rise up and receive this Christ and his messengers, were the very ones who turned to kill him. Of course, they're going to persecute Christ's disciples. The same council that put this Jesus to death. So you can imagine, right, as they're dealing with the disciples, you can imagine just how angry they were in dealing with them because they can't stamp out the Christians. Imagine their faces then when after, after having woke up that morning, after having drank their morning brew and gotten ready, gathered together as a whole council, they find out the disciples are gone. The scene, I think, is on the one hand completely serious because they just killed Jesus, right? But on the other hand, it's really comical. It's really comical. I mean, if you think about it, just go back to the council's dealings with Jesus. They kill him, they lay him in the tomb, but three days later, the dead guy is missing from the tomb. And then now, you know, a couple months later, now missing from the jail is the dead guy's disciples. Now, when we hear in this, look there in verse 24, you see that they're perplexed. They're wondering, you know, who knows what? At least they probably think that they got fugitives on the run. But what is worse? Having fugitives on the run where you don't know what they're doing or finding out that they're doing the very thing that you told them not to do again. Verse 25, look at what they do. Someone runs in at the moment. What are they told? Someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So fascinating, right? They are right back at it. They're right back at it. You see how determined God is to bring the gospel to sinners as the apostles are right back at it? God doesn't free them from prison, right, the apostles, in order to get them off the front lines, at least in this case, but he frees them in order to get them back on the front lines. And we have every reason to think that the disciples faithfully stood at their posts, preaching the name of Jesus, and continued to do so. That's what it says. The authority, just think about the perspective of the authorities 
who arrested the disciples, they're freed, and then they're right back doing what they do. What must have they concluded about what the apostles are teaching about, right? That's what they're doing. They're right back teaching. That's why they got arrested. They're right back doing the very thing that they got arrested for. They must have concluded that the teaching in Jesus' name is awfully important. They're willing to suffer inconvenience. They're willing to go to jail for the sake of his name. That's actually a really great thing for you guys to think about. How awfully important is the name of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and witnessing to Jesus to you? Do your friends know that you are not just a Christian, but a witness to Jesus? Right, it's one thing to say, I go to church, and then just kind of shut up and be quiet. It's another thing to say, I go to church because I love Jesus, and this is who he is, and let me tell you about him. And so you go on to witness, not only describing that you are, but describing why you are, and holding out to your friends and your family and everybody around you why you are a Christian, why it is that you follow this Jesus Christ. So just think of your friends, your your social circles. Do they know you to be an actual witness? Wouldn't it be so encouraging if your friends knew that you were right back at it, right? Let's say after your job, or maybe even in your job, if your job would allow you, but but let's assume, you know, you're, you're being responsible to your company, your company's paying you to do something, and then they know that, you know, what, what, what's Jeremy doing after work? What's he going to do? What's he doing on weekends? What's he doing on holidays? What's he, what's, he, what's he about? Right? When you turn up to the party, do they know that you're probably going to talk about Jesus? When, when they see you and they want some advice and they actually go to you for just regular life advice, do they just assume probably because you said so much about Jesus that you are once again going to witness to Jesus about how, yeah, this could, this could be an answer to your practical problem. But look, you realize that there's a greater problem, and that problem is your sin in relation to Jesus, but Jesus loves you. Do they know you to witness like that, to get right back at it? Loving Christ, loving other people in Jesus, specifically through sharing with them the gospel. If they do, friends, I pray that you are encouraged. You should be absolutely encouraged, right? You just think about it, right? Everybody talks about what they love. You probably talk about your favorite team, your favorite coffee, your favorite dessert, your favorite video game. Same with Christians. Christians are to witness to our Christ, whom we all love. If your friends and family, your coworkers, and those you enjoy hobbying with, if they do not know you to be a Christian who witnesses to your Savior, it's worth asking the question as to why. It could be, as we think about Acts chapters 3, 4, and 5, it could be that you care more for your own honor than the Lord's. It could be that you care more for your own temporary comfort over your neighbor's eternal salvation. It could simply be you've never evangelized, but yet you want to learn. It's worth asking the question of why and then asking your friends and your, Christ, your Christian members around you, your pastors, to help you think about how it is that you actually can stand for Jesus, whether it be learning about how to evangelize, learning the gospel more and more, understanding what it means for others, and then also taking a chance and a risk, like the apostles clearly are doing, and evangelizing others. For the disciples, they are right back doing what Jesus had called them to do. But unfortunately... 
the Jewish leaders too, what are they doing? They, they too are right back at it, doing what they do. They hate the disciples' witness. And so they scoop them up, hoping to interrogate them yet again. You look there in verse 28, we see why they try so hard to shut them up. The window into the soul right here, verse 28, we see why they try so hard to shut them up. First, you look there, verse 28, they could not control them. They say, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Got all right? In terms of the story, they gather them up again, they interrogate them. And they say, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. It's like they don't even mention this, this Jesus. They're going to do this sort of thing again where, where all, it's almost like Jesus' name is discarded with. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Oh, they must be so angry. They tell them to shut up, but then the witness just goes out and out and out as, as Jerusalem and then the surrounding areas come to the apostles. In terms of why they want to shut them up, I mean, this is pretty normal, right? They're using their earthly authority. Unfortunately, in a sinful way, they did, in fact, command the disciples to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. But where they went wrong is that they refused to acknowledge the true Lord. They were supposed to use their authority for God's purposes, hopefully helping the people to understand who this Jesus is, to behold the king. But in reality, they were actually using God's given authority, their God-given authority, to keep people, keep God's people from the true king. And it's not like they accidentally kept people from Jesus. It was purposeful. Their refusal was purposeful. They rejected him, obviously. They crucified him, but they didn't care. In fact, they thought there was nothing wrong with it. And this brings us to the second reason why they wanted to shut him up. Second reason, they weren't going to have anyone tell them they were guilty of killing King Jesus. Second half of verse 28. They didn't want anybody telling them that they were guilty. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us you hear that there? They're determined in their refusal to own their sin. They refuse to let anybody implicate us in the killing of this man's blood. Of course, we as readers know, in fact, that they are, without a question, guilty of denying and then crucifying God's chosen Messiah and servant who atones for his people's sins. He who is the Prince of Peace, who is righteous and brings renewal to a needy, spiritually desperate people, but in their self-righteousness and then seeking to justify themselves, they deflect. They don't want to own their sin. But from God's perspective, no matter what they may think of themselves, they are, in fact, guilty of this man's blood. This is really interesting for us as Christians to consider. In many ways, persecution came to them because the gospel presents what they, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priest, found to be harsh truths, right? What were the harsh truths? Well, first, the apostles simply tell them, look, you're not the highest authority. You're not the highest authority. And then second, the apostles tell them, look, you have sinned against God. And you need to be reconciled to them. So from their perspective, they are thinking we are the highest authority. And we haven't sinned at all. The message of Christianity itself can be actually a very offensive message, especially in this day and age where what is worshipped is the notion of the autonomous self. The notion of the autonomous self. This is human beings thinking, look, we're just disconnected with God. Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not, maybe even we don't care. But we're disconnected from the Creator, and we have substituted ourselves in His place. So then, just think about it for a moment, right? Without God over us and His good and righteous law, we then are over ourselves. It's not God's rule that rules us. 
Instead, it's our rule that rules ourselves. The offensive part, though, is that God says that this is, in fact, sin. That we are not the highest rulers, but instead God is over us. People don't like to hear that for sure, but if we think about parallel situations, right? If you're visiting with us, maybe you're exploring Christianity, you hear this and you think, well, hold on a second, I don't think I like this idea of somebody over me. I hope you see that this actually could be wrong, and I think is wrong, clearly, in certain circumstances. So just think about your regular life examples, right? You think about a loving employer, right, who just gives you a shot. Praise God for that. But then you go and take advantage of them. Even though they're providing you a wage, you go and steal from them with absolute disregard. No thanks, no gratitude, no care, no, no love. You're just all about yourself. I mean, have you done wrong? Non-Christians would even look at non-Christians who behave that way and think they're doing wrong. Better yet, picture a king who takes in a ragtag bunch of wanderers, even rebels, because he loves them, because he wants them to know the quote-unquote good life under his reign. So he brings them into the kingdom. He bestows upon them citizenship when they deserve judgment. He shares of his very resources. But then imagine going and plotting a takeover. I hope you'd be able to say that that's entirely wrong. Non-Christians would look over there and say, yes, that is wrong. Gangsters would go and look and say, that is wrong. Well, friends, the Bible says this is wrong. This is sin. The Bible says that living as if we are God, basically like we are, it's basically like we are plotting and attempting a takeover. God has created all people to be in a relationship, a loving relationship with him. He has provided us everything we could ever need, but we rejected him. We opted to live and sell instead as if we are gods, creating our own law, becoming whatever it is we want. We flex our autonomy. God says that's simply sin. It's what the Jewish leaders were guilty of as they crucified Jesus. And it is also, friends, what we are guilty of as well, as there is none righteous, no, not one. We've all turned away from God, the book of Romans says. Now, again, if you're visiting with us, you might hear that and think, Man, you Christians, sounds like you guys maybe want to hinder people from being and becoming truly human, right? In our day and age, to be human, you can literally become anything you want to be. Think of the sexual revolution that's going on today and that has gone on in the past. We become anything we want, whatever we think, whatever we feel, we can become. Sounds like you Christians want to hinder people from being and becoming truly human. But let me, let me just say, like, that's so far from the case. That's not what we as Christians uh, aim for. We actually want people to become more and more human, so to speak. We are actually trying to recover this right understanding of humanity in order that all humanity would flourish. We just think, contrary to many, we just think that humanity flourishes underneath their creator. Underneath the one who has, so to speak, coded us not under autonomous self-rule of the individual or society, but under God, our maker. And so in effort to understand what true humanity was designed for, we go to the very word of God. God's revelation, which contains his eternal word, certainly given to us at a certain period of time, but it contains his eternal word and has present application to our situation. God helps us to understand who we are designed to be, made in the image of God. 
Incredible. Made to live underneath God's care, in dependence upon him who knows best how we ought to live, and also to reflect his beauty and his glory to one another as we love like he does. So fundamental to the Christian worldview and understanding of the world is that humankind is not self-governing, but instead we are absolutely dependent upon God, our maker. He is the highest authority, and we are dependent on him, and we are accountable to him. That's the very thing that the Jewish leaders rejected. And having rebelled against him, we are in fact in sin. Another very thing that here the leaders of Israel rejected. So if there is an offense in these truths, it's not anything intentional here. We don't intentionally try to offend others here. We're just trying to restore people to their maker. And of course we see that this happens in Jesus Christ. Through whom all things were made, think authority, and in whom there is forgiveness of sins. Did you also see that the apostles hold out the gospel of forgiveness with God? Right? So we recognize that, yes, there is sin, but there's also forgiveness in Jesus. And that's what they hold out there. This brings us to point number two. Despite animosity from the Jewish leaders, the apostles give not animosity in return, but instead they give love and truth in the gospel of grace. They, what they do here in holding out the gospel, they are evidence of God's persistence that the gospel go to the ends of the world in spite of the people's refusal. Now, when you think about people explaining the gospel in love, and truth, right? Do not think that they soft pedal. Do not think that they soft pedal any of the truths of Jesus or that they hold back. It's actually just the opposite. They stand firm on the very thing, the very issues that the Jewish leaders take issue with, they stand firm on. And so I think they're excellent examples. You remember the first point, right? The Jewish leaders, they take issue with, you are not obeying our commands. Well, look at their response there in verse 29. We must obey God, greatest authority. We must obey God rather than man. We can't do what you guys are asking. Even more clearly, they make a point to say, we will not obey you. And it's not not just we will not, it is also we cannot. Because God is who he says he is. They functionally say there is a greater authority over all individuals, over even you, the leaders of Israel. And he is the creator and maker of the universe who sent his chosen servant. We must listen to him. Christians are those who live underneath the lordship of Christ. So while God calls us to obey and submit and pray for the governing authorities, it's very clear also that we cannot and should not obey if that governing authority asks us to go against Christ and his word. This goes for any who are In submission, you think also about the wife to the husband, the employee to the employer. If they're asking you to do something that is sinful, we must obey God rather than man. But in everything else here, the Christians should be so eager, so eager to obey, so eager to pray, so eager to submit, because that's what God calls us to do. And then you think about the second point. Remember the second point here. The Jewish leaders, they take issue with, we will not be implicated, we are not guilty. Well, look at what the apostles say in verse 30. They don't soft pedal, they don't say, oh, yes, you're right, or okay, I'll just shut up here. No, they say, functionally, actually, you are guilty. You killed God's chosen servant. Look at verse 30. You killed him. 
He puts their sin right square on their shoulders. You are guilty of murdering Jesus and sinning against God the Son and killing him. So instead of soft-pedaling any truth, they stand firm in the truth. As we've mentioned in the, in the past, right, they have a big God. We must obey God rather than man. And so with their healthy fear of God, it outweighs any fear of man. Now, even the apostles were firm in their response against the leaders of Israel. Note here that they did not retaliate out of anger. So we're trying to navigate, right? How is it that they, in the face of animosity, can hold out the gospel? Certainly not by soft peddling. It's also not by retaliation. Their response was actually loving. And we ought to think that because they're sharing the gospel with them. Look at verse 30. You killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. God exalted him at his right hand, right? Think position of authority as leader and savior. That's what he is, right? Leader and savior. God's chosen one as head, as leader, as prince over his people. And he is, in fact, their savior. Why did God send him and then exalt him after the crucifixion and resurrection? One person, commentator, puts it this way, translates it this way. Peter says, so that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness and forgive their sins. Here's where all the more God's love is on display. You realize what Peter is saying and who he is saying it to? The apostles hold out forgiveness of sins to the very ones who led the charge to kill Christ. As one said, as Peter uttered these words, the offer of salvation was once more extended to the very ones who condemned Jesus to death. This is not retaliation out of anger, clearly, but it is actually loving evangelism. Even they might be saved. Friends, I hope you see in all of this, I hope you see the character of God. Look how God responds to animosity. He responds here with merciful compassion. Again, similar to last week, I see your pride and anger, and God double downs with love in the gospel. You killed my eternal son? Well, I have raised him up, so that through him, anyone and everyone, and even you, the Israelite, the leaders of Israel who killed Jesus, anyone and everyone, even you who turns from their sin and believes on him, who calls upon his name, will be saved. We see God's great love. It's a love that does not soft-pedal or compromise his justice and righteousness. No, he certainly holds people accountable, right? They sinned. They disobeyed God, the ultimate ruler. But his love here, and his love here is also merciful in that even though sinners deserve judgment for sin, judgment in hell, the Bible even says, as we all have rebelled against God and earned for ourselves just judgment, here God holds out forgiveness. He will one day have his son return to judge, the eternal son, but, un, but until then, he says, right now is the day of salvation. If you're visiting with us, I hope you know that this is what Christians, this is why we preach what we preach. God intended his whole entire church to hold out this message of salvation to the ends of the earth. Here, as we see as this message of salvation goes to the Israelites, God intended his church to hold out this message first to Israel and then bring it to the ends of the earth. And that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. And we are evidence of this, that it has happened. Though we ourselves have rebelled against our maker and creator, God has reached out to us in Jesus Christ. 
And as Christ's people, we preach that through Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross, as he bore the sin and the wrath that his people deserved, those people who repent of their sin and believe can be saved, restored to our maker and king. And so he calls everybody to repent and be reconciled with him. In this relationship, he invites us to live underneath him as king and underneath his good and loving rule. In this relationship, we are adopted, to use another metaphor here in the Bible for salvation, we are adopted into his family where we can know him as loving father. And before him, who has all authority, we are actually pardoned and forgiven our sin in order that we might know the grace of the Lord and Savior. Praise God that on the cross he bears the wrath that his people deserved. Three days later he gets up from the dead showing that now all of his people, for his people, death is no longer required as he has won the victory. Your sin is now wiped away. The punishment that you rightly deserved is now gone. And the relationship that we severed, God himself restores to us. You see his char- the character of God here? He calls us all, he calls you, friend, to turn from your sins and believe on him, and you will be saved, all by his grace, his free grace. Again, it's not our goal in preaching these truths to unnecessarily offend. We just aim to see humanity reconciled to their maker and put right to God, and by his grace and with his help, we now are to live as we truly have been designed to live, according to, not ourselves, not society, but ultimately God himself. In conclusion, church, knowing that Christ is Lord of our lives and and then having experienced God's love, the Lord's love for ourselves, it's in those things that we can respond. It's in knowing those things that we can respond in the way God desires us to respond, even if we suffer for the faith. Even in the face of animosity, we can, like Christ, hold out, not revenge, or return animosity, but hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can walk like Christ in holding out the gospel rather than fearing man and compromising the gospel. And again, even in the face of animosity, we can, like Christ, love to the death. Not by soft-pedaling the message of the gospel or bending to whatever the authorities might say is lawful or unlawful should that day ever come. But we do this by continuing to hold out the truth that sinners can be saved through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ for his people. This is God's way. Though the people were persistent in silencing Christ's disciples, God was and is more persistent in getting the good news of his son to the ends of the earth in order to build his church. So Christian, let me ask you, are you a faithful witness? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that your grace is so persistent. We thank you that your love is so persistent. And we see right here a little microcosm of how it works. How even in the face of sin, you, Lord, continue to hold out the gospel to the very ones who assaulted you and rebelled against you. 
Lord, we know that we did not nail Jesus to the cross physically. But we know, Lord, that we are responsible, that we have, in fact, sinned against God as all people have, as there is no not one who is righteous. Well, Lord, we thank you that you are so gracious and so loving, and for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. God, help us to be so, help us to be faithful witnesses to this marvelous gospel and love that you have given us in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.